All right, we are working through the um, Elder Declaration of Faith. So if you didn't get one last week, there are a handful up here, and I would be happy to hand them out, uh, but I, uh, um, I, uh, you can just come up and grab them if you want, or Andrew can pass it out or something. So um, thanks, Andrew. Um, but you remember, just, just to review, this document, uh, we're, Lord willing, uh, before the members today is the vote for the um, member declaration of faith. Um, and those are the things that every member needs to subscribe to, the kind of fundamentals of the faith, if you will, that uh, we, we confess and declare together as members of this uh, local church. And then uh, what we're talking through, so we finished going through that. What we're talking through now is the expanded um, elder declaration of faith, which is, uh, is way more detailed than the member declaration of faith. Because, you know, if you think about it, if you're a baby believer, um, you, should, um, you should move towards being a member of a church. Well, what do you need to know? You know very little, actually, as a believer. There's some fundamental things you need to know, of course. Uh, but then uh, the idea is you're going to be taught over time in a more detailed way. You're going to know more truth uh, over time. And so that's what the uh, elder declaration of faith represents. This is, these are the standards that we want to teach you to, um, as the elders are commissioned by, uh, by the Holy Spirit, by Christ himself, to teach the local church. Uh, these are the things that we are committed to as elders uh, to be teaching and, and proclaiming to y'all. So last week we got through... Um, page four, basically, talking about, again, those foundational issues of the scriptures, uh, of the nature of God. Um, so uh, we talked about God the Father, we talked about God the Son, uh, and we pick up with God the Holy Spirit on page five um, at the top there. Um, so we articulate the Trinity at the beginning, one God and three persons. Uh, we've talked about the Father and the Son, now we talk about the Holy Spirit. So uh, again, this is, uh, this is I'll, I'll read this, but then note what sticks out to you. Uh, note what you have questions about. Uh, we are going through this fairly quickly, uh, not because these things aren't important, they obviously are, uh, but just because we've got, kind, of, kind of gone through the, the basics of these in the member declaration of faith. So, God the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Eternal, underived, possessing all the attributes of personality and deity, including intellect, emotions, will, eternality, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, and truthfulness. In all the divine attributes, he is co-equal and consubstantial with the Father and the Son. So here, uh, the key things that you note, and this was also in the Membler Declaration, but again, the person's not, uh, the, the, the Spirit is not a force, he is a person. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the key things we want to affirm about the Spirit. Again, that language, co-equal, consubstantial, is trying to articulate that the Spirit is equally as God as the Son and the Father are. So that, that, that language there, he, all the attributes of God the Spirit has. Um, and uh, so that's, again, a lot of that language was in the member declaration of faith. We believe in the sovereign activity of the Holy Spirit in creation. So Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, what is exactly is he doing? Well, he's involved in some fashion or another. Um, some argue he's energizing the work. Uh, remember, in general, you talk about from the Father, 
through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And so you see that in the different acts of, uh, of, of um, redemptive history. Uh, so we believe in the sovereign activity of the Holy Spirit in creation, the incarnation. Um, the, uh, Jesus was uh, uh, implanted in Mary's womb through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the written revelation, he inspired the author, he moved in the authors of Scripture to write uh, such that the text of Scripture is inspired, and the work of salvation. We believe that a new work of the Holy Spirit began at Pentecost, when he came from the Father, as promised by Christ, to initiate and complete the building of the body of Christ, which is his church. The broad scope of his divine activity includes convicting the world of sin of righteousness and of judgment, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ and transforming believers into the image of Christ. So uh, that I think that paragraph is a little bit, um, I don't think you see that in the member declaration of faith. What this is trying to articulate is uh, when the Spirit comes forth in Pentecost, that's new because it's court, it's, that's part of the new covenant reality of uh, the Spirit indwelling in uh, spirit indwelling believers, those who know God, uh, to empower them for, uh, to live holy lives, to, uh, for worship, for service. So in the Old Testament, you have people who are saved, but they're not indwelt by the Spirit. Uh, there are still uh, op- things that you see in the Old Testament where the Spirit comes upon uh, individuals to empower them for work, uh, but this idea of the Spirit indwelling is new, coordinating with the new covenant that's been instituted in Christ. Let me pause there. Obviously, we've got more to read on the Spirit, but what questions, comments uh, do you have up to, up to this point? All right, well, I'll keep moving then. We believe... Um, that the Holy Spirit is the supernatural and sovereign agent in regeneration, baptizing all believers into the body of Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit also indwells, sanctifies, instructs, and empowers them for service and seals them unto the day of redemption. Um, so uh, when we talk about, uh, when you think of John 3 um, and Jesus talking with Nicodemus, and he's talking about being born again or born from above, uh, he's talking about this reality that you're not born until the Holy Spirit sovereignly acts to regenerate you, to give you a new nature, because our uh, original, our, our nature in Adam is fallen, uh, and so we're articulating this, and not uh, only does the Holy Spirit regenerate, he, as we said, indwells, he instructs, he empowers, he seals. Uh, that's the language of Ephesians 1.13, that the Holy Spirit seals us, uh, protects us, keeps us. Uh, until the, uh, the day of redemption. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the divine teacher who guided the apostles and the prophets into all truth as they committed to writing God's revelation, the Bible. Um, every believer possesses the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit from the moment of salvation, and it is the duty of all those born of the Spirit to not grieve, but to be led by the Holy Spirit through the means that he has given. And so especially you see that in Galatians 5, 16 through 26, the passage about the fruits of the Spirit, that language of being led by the Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, you listen to what he says from the Scriptures, and you align your life in light of that, 
dependent on his power to do so. So not only is he setting the direction through the scriptures, but then you're trying to align your life to match that. So um, questions up to this point. Yeah, good. So that's um, Ephesians 4.30 is where that comes from. Um, and uh, in Ephesians 4, it talks about how you are a new creation in Christ. So put off the old man, put on the new man. And so he gives illustrations of that, like the th- let the thief no longer steal, but let him, but let him um, do honest labor uh, so that he may share. Uh, and then kind of towards the end of at least, or the middle, depending on how you you think it continues on into chapter 5, he says, don't grieve the spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of um, redemption. Uh, meaning that when we sin, um, we grieve God. We grieve the spirit. We, uh, it makes him sad. Uh, now, uh, how does that look in an eternal God um, who um, is emotional? Life is, I can't even fathom, but it is true, right? That scripture affirms that God has emotions, um, and that uh, they, in some sense, respond to how we respond. Not that God changes. He already knew that he was going to be grieved because of our sin, but it's real. It's real that he is grieved um, when that happens. So, which, that is one of the ways that we fight sin, right? We, if we know that when we sin, we are going to grieve God by this. Uh, we are going to grieve the Spirit who's indwelling me, right? Uh, we talk about um, how if he's indwelling me, then I individually uh, am a temple of the Spirit. My life is supposed to be dedicated to God. Then if I, if I commit idolatry uh, with this body that is supposed to be a temple, um, which is the essence of sin, then that's grieving to God. And, it is, um, it, and you can even see a picture of that, of kind of a vivid picture in Ezekiel, where you see um, you, there's this vision Ezekiel has where it's the physical temple at that time, but like you go into the temple and there's all like these scrawlings and all this idolatry that's actually happening in the temple. Um, and God's like, he's like, let me show you Ezekiel all the ways that my people are grieving me. Um, and so if you translate that into our time where the individual and the corporate, right, the individual and the corporate church are temples of the spirit, then when we do sin, we grieve, um, we grieve God because effectively we're committing idolatry in God's temple. So it's just another way of looking at that. Yeah, uh, Tony. Yes, very much. Very, very true. Very true. Yeah. Um, good. Any other questions up to that point? Eden? Yeah, which is why we keep, you know, um, how do you grow? Well, read the Bible, pray. Uh, independence on the power of the Holy Spirit to work through those means. We always talk about means of grace. Uh, the scriptures, um, prayer, the church, um, 
uh, providence, God, uh, uh, the Spirit working through situations, but uh, their means, their tools that the Spirit uses, are like tools in His toolbox. Um, to uh, so that's why we want to always go to those means. Like, all right, I know that the Holy Spirit is using the the Word of God like a chisel to conform me to the image of Christ. So I want to sit under the ministry of that chisel as often as I can because I really want to be conformed to the image of Christ. Um, that doesn't dictate what the Spirit does or the speed at which the Spirit does things. He is sovereign, but, um, but that's why we talk about the means of grace, the means of grace that the Spirit uses to conform us to the image of Christ. Uh, Steve, were you, you were going to bring something. And the interesting thing is, right, is our, for a true believer, right, for a true believer whom, whom God knows and has known from eternity past, that that relationship is not severed uh, by that sin. You can be a believer and you can sin, right, and you've grieved God. Your Father still loves you, and He wants you to draw near to Him, and He wants you to be reconciled, but... Uh, there's a process, even as a believer, where we go through and we repent, uh, we confess our sins, we repent, and uh, the basis of that reconciliation um, is through Christ and through Christ alone, just as that initial salvation. So, yeah. All right, let's keep moving. We believe that the Holy Spirit administers spiritual gifts to the church. The Holy Spirit glorifies neither himself nor his gifts by ostentatious displays. But he does glorify Christ by implementing his work of redeeming the lost and building up believers in the most holy faith. So this is trying to articulate that there's a lot, unfortunately, that goes under the name of Christianity and that goes under the name of the Spirit that's just absurdity um, and ostentatious displays, as the language is here. But if you look at, uh, let's say, John... 14 through 16-ish, where Jesus is instructing, he's talking to the apostles about the coming of the Spirit. Um, he, he, he essentially says, the Spirit's going to come, and he's going to bear witness about me, right? So when we think about the role of the Spirit in the work of redemption, the Spirit's always pointing back to Jesus. The Spirit's always pointing back to Jesus. And so uh, when you've got these kind of weird um, things that are supposedly of the Spirit, and they're like kind of glorifying the Spirit, it's like, well, but that's not what the Spirit does. The Spirit actually points back to Christ. Um, and so that's why, that's what this paragraph is designed to, to speak to. Uh, connected with this, we see the next paragraph. We believe in this respect that God the Holy Spirit is sovereign in the bestowing of all his gifts for the perfecting of the saints today, and that uh, speaking in tongues and the working of sign miracles in the beginning days of the church were for the purpose of pointing to and authenticating the apostles as revealers of divine truth and were never intended to be characteristic of the lives of believers." Uh, and that's what we believe. We teach cessationism, meaning that 
Uh, basically, the, the miraculous gifts that you see at the beginning of the church, they needed to be there. They needed to be there because new revelation was giving, it was being given through the apostles and New Testament prophets. Um, and so there needed to be authentication of that word. But uh, once you get to the end of the canon, Revelation, uh, you, you don't really need those anymore because you've got enough truth uh, to essentially make it through to the next stage of redemption. You can think of it like this. When Malachi, or whichever the last, uh, it's either Malachi or like Chronicles. That's the last um, book of the Old Testament. But there's basically silence in the prophetic um, uh, world until you get John the Baptist, or really actually Zechariah's father, because he prophesies at the beginning of Luke there. But uh, why is that? Because you've got the kind of the next stage of redemption happening. Uh, and so if you think about that, uh, the, 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 the next stage of redemption at that point was Christ's first coming, and now we've got the church being established, so we need some information about that. Well, uh, what's the next big uh, redemptive stage on the, um, on the, the list? It's it's Christ's second coming. And so you do see in Revelation that revelation, uh, direct revelation will be reopened because you got the two prophets uh, who are going to be prophesying at that time. But it's, it's around the time when Christ's second coming is happening. So all, always when you have this kind of new revelation beginning, it's, it's the next stage of redemptive history happening. Throughout the scriptures. So, um, so that's what, that's, in a nutshell, that's um, why we hold to and teach cessationism. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the idea. We have what we need for now, right? <laughs> we have what we need for now, um, and uh, that's kind of how revelation works. Is, is God's revelation always sufficient for its time? Yeah, so the sufficiency of Scripture means whatever was given up through the ending, well, you could even think, uh, you know, when Moses signs off at the end of Deuteronomy, was revelation sufficient up to that point? Yes, it's always sufficient up to the point um, where, it's, where it's given, right? Now the canon's closed because we have what we need for now. Um, and then as things develop in the future, God will give what he needs um, through uh, those gifts again. So, yeah. So that, we come to the end of uh, the Holy Spirit there. Any, any questions, comments? Okay. Let's talk about mankind. And you can see, right, we're following the same basic outline that we did in the member declaration of faith. There's a progression. Um, we start with the foundation. Um, how do we 
we start with the scriptures because only through the scriptures can we know God. And now we've talked about God, so let's talk about the image of God. Let's talk about um, mankind. We believe that mankind was directly and immediately created by God as his image according to his likeness in two distinct and fixed genders of male and female in order to glorify him through their distinct roles and enjoy God's fellowship. Uh, Man and woman are co-equal before God in terms of inherent value, dignity, and personal responsibility. Uh, Man was created free of sin with a rational nature, intelligence, volition, self-determination, and moral responsibility to God. Now, one thing I would draw your attention to, so here's where where the Trinity can help you a little bit and the way we articulate um, humankind. God has... Is equal, uh, the three persons of the Trinity are equal in essence, in dignity, uh, in their godness, um, but they have distinct roles, don't they? Uh, they have distinct roles in the work of redemption. Um, man and woman are equal in value, in dignity, uh, in inherent worth, in essence, and yet there are distinct roles um, that really, uh, just that little phrase there, distinct roles, there's a lot packed into that phrase. Because uh, we, we teach complementarianism, meaning that we believe that God has given to the man uh, a primary leadership role in the household, uh, and that the, the wife is to come alongside and support him. To, they're to work together, but they're to work together in complementary roles. Um, and so there are certain roles that women should not take on in the home or in the church, not because there's not inherent um, equality and dignity and value, but because of the roles that God has assigned. Um, and so tucked into that little, <laughs> those two words, distinct roles, there's actually a lot uh, that we mean by that. Um, so, uh, and, and this, this opening paragraph is basically the same as uh, the, the member declaration of faith. We believe that God's intention in the creation of mankind was that mankind should glorify God through exercising a stewardship reign over creation as a priest king, enjoying God's fellowship, and living his life under the will of God. Uh, you especially see this, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Once you unpack all of that language that God is speaking um, when he's instituting man and woman and their role and their job, uh, it, it kind of boils down to this, an intimate relationship with God, uh, but a way of stewardship reigning over creation. Um, you know, you can kind of think of God's created everything and it's good, but in a sense, um, uh, might be a way of saying this, um, where it needs, it can't, it has the potential to be reshaped in ways that are glorifying and honoring and pleasing to God. And so ultimately, when we think about the role of and the function of humanity, uh, we're to exercise that reign, that stewardship over created things, uh, to live in relationship to each other and in relationship to God for his glory, meaning his honor, his reputation, to reflect back to him in some measure the, uh, the, the value of his intrinsic worth. Um, and so that's fundamental uh, when we think about humanity. Uh, any questions up to this point? All right. We believe that in Adam's sin of disobedience to the revealed will and word of God, mankind lost its innocence. 
Now, I'll pause right there. Well, let me keep reading. Um, Lost its innocence, incurred the penalty of spiritual and physical death, became subject to the wrath of God, and became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God apart from divine grace. With no recuperative powers to enable him to recover himself, mankind is hopelessly lost. Mankind's salvation is thereby wholly of God's grace through the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our articulation of um, total depravity, right? That um, there is, uh, we are spiritually dead, so you can't, a dead person can't do what is right and pleasing to God. It just can't happen. So um, the only way that that can happen is through God's grace, through God moving first. Um, That is the idea. Uh, When we use all this language about um, corruption, we're not, in no way are we saying that human beings are not currently God's image. So that's the thing about the fall, is that God's image was marred. It's like taking a mirror and breaking it. The mirror is still, the pieces of the mirror still function. It definitely does not function the way it was supposed to, right? Um, So none of this language are we denying that mankind uh, has an inherent value and dignity as God's image bearers, even in a broken and kind of marred form. Uh, It's just that it's, it's, we're in bad shape because of our corruption and because of our sin. And we're, each of us, all of us, subject um, uh, to the wrath of God. Um, I'll, I'll finish this last little statement, and then I'll pause for questions and comments. Uh, we believe that because all who are conceived by means of a human father have union with Adam, a nature corrupted by Adam's sin has been transmitted to all people of all ages, Jesus Christ being the only exception. All people are thus sinners by nature and by choice. So you look at the scriptures, um, and it it kind of makes sense, like, what is the command to Adam um, and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That's part of the stewardship rule idea. Um, but what you see is because man has a, a leadership role given to him by God, um, and he's the one that initially receives the directive uh, in Genesis 2. He's created first. He's given the directives to do these things. Well, because of that, um, when Adam sinned, he, he has a corrupt nature, but then through the procreative act, that corrupt nature um, transmits to everyone. So everyone, every human being, is in, except for Christ, because no human father was involved, uh, that um, all human beings are corrupted. So this is why the virgin birth is important, right? Because no human father is involved, therefore no um, inherent corruption through being united to Adam is involved. So, uh, questions, comments on this section on humankind? Yeah, if you look at Matthew, we did Matthew's genealogy over a year ago now, I think. Um, but 
you see there how careful Matthew is at the very end. Uh, he's basically giving, saying, here, Jesus has the legal right to reign. That last statement, it, uh, it very, guards very carefully and very, very precise in um, saying um, basically that, uh, you know, Joseph is uh, Jesus' adopted father, but he's, he's born through Mary. So, uh, that's important. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's that's the idea is not only so you have it's you have a corruption, right? And an corruption a corrupt nature inherited through Adam, which means them in this sense. Every human being has freedom in this sense. We are free to do what we want to do. What we are free to do what we want to do. So when we make a choice to sin, it's because we want to do. God didn't coerce us to sin. Uh, we are free to do what we want to do, and our wants are to sin because we have a corrupt nature. So that's that element of choice that's coming in there, right? Is um, because of my corrupt nature, I have a I have towards sin. I have a desire towards sin. Uh, and that's the the amazing reality of the gospel is that uh, we need a new nature. So going back to some of that regeneration language, so that now I have desires to do what is right. The only way I have desires to do what is right, the only way I have desire to submit to Christ, is because the Spirit has um, given me a new nature. So. Right. 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 Right, Matt. Matt. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's there's two ways of looking at sin, right? Um, there's a vertical dimension, meaning in relation to God, 
and there's a horizontal dimension in relation to others. So horizontally, some you can, I mean, even Scripture acknowledges that there's different severity of different sins, right? But in relation to God, a sin is a sin, right? So in relation to God, in that vertical dimension, we're all under God's wrath. We all deserve his judgment. However, uh, that doesn't mean in a horizontal dimension we're as depraved as we could be, doing all the evil that we could, um, and and that's by his mercy and grace, um, because if that, I mean, the world would be... Um, so, and really kind of what happened with the flood is it's gotten to such a point and such a level of corruption that, okay, we need to uh, give the world a bath, so, um, and start, start new to an extent, so. Even you think about the lifespans, right, uh, of human beings, right? Uh, God designed human beings to live forever, even in an initial way, so you see all those lifespans, and you kind of, if you know the corruption of your own heart, right, without the intervention of grace, to live that long, and like how much evil you can come up with over that amount of time, uh, it's kind of scary. So it's God's mercy even to cut short lifespans uh, for the sake of the, the world. So anyway, we digress. Um, let's talk about salvation. Um, let's talk about salvation. Uh, we believe that salvation is holy of God by grace on the basis of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the merit of his shed blood, and not on the basis of human merit or works. So God, grace is, uh, it's, un, it's unmerited. I mean, if it's, what we do say here it's merited by something, it's merited by Christ. Every good thing that has happened or will happen, um, and if you think about not only were people affected by the fall, but creation itself, um, all of that will be restored because of the merits of Christ's blood. Um, he is infinitely valuable in his person because he's God in his person. Um, and so uh, his blood has an infinite merit um, that will restore um, all things. Um, totally by no merit, no, no consideration of um, human merit or works. Um, in the work of salvation. Regeneration. We believe that regeneration is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit by which the divine nature and divine life are given. Regeneration is instantaneous and is accomplished solely by the power of the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of the Word of God, producing repentance and faith in the divine provision of salvation in the sinner. Genuine Genuine regeneration, say that fast ten times. Genuine regeneration is manifested by fruits worthy of repentance as demonstrated in righteous attitudes and conduct. Good works are the proper evidence of and fruit of regeneration and will be experienced to the extent that the believer submits to the control of the Holy Spirit in his life through faithful obedience to the word of God. This obedience causes the believer to be increasingly conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such a conformity is climaxed in the believer's glorification at Christ's coming. So what you want to pick out from this is uh, we're dead. We can't respond to God. We are unable to choose anything good. So the Spirit has to act first. And what we mean by regeneration. So um, the Spirit causes the new birth, 
And what, how do you know a baby is born? It cries, and the cry of the first cry of a believer is repentance and faith. Uh, now, we think in terms of temporality, right? Like, uh, did regeneration happen before uh, repentance and faith? Well, I would argue, it seems like in Scripture they happen at the same time. They're glued together. But one logically precedes the other. So immediately, instantaneously, when you're regenerated, you're crying repentance and faith. Um, and, um, and so that's, that's, that's how we understand, um, that's how we understand uh, how we come to repentance and faith, because we can't even have repentance and faith, which is a, 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 a right response to God, uh, apart from the Spirit's working first. Um, so it's just God's sovereign choice and grace that that happens. Okay. Uh, any questions on regeneration? And, and that's the thing. Again, remember, we're not just trying to be accurate in our doctrine. We do want to be that. We do want to be accurate in our doctrine. But for the purpose of understanding our great God uh, and being able to worship him. So like Steve says, right, these, these truths should cause an emotional reaction um, in your life um, because it's articulating what God has, who God is and what God has done. Uh, and it goes back to that idea. What are we designed to do? We're designed to be worshipers. So this doctrinal statements, in, at their best, should help us to worship God um, better and with greater precision, um, uh, because we're just articulating and summarizing what Scripture itself says. Uh, one thing also I would note, uh, regeneration, it starts, it, articulated in this paragraph, you see that it, it starts a, um, a process, right? Um, there's a new nature given, but that nature develops. And so even as we say that um, it's, if you're crying out in repentance and faith to Christ, that's going to, because you have a new nature, uh, you're also going to do good works. You're going to obey. Uh, and you're increasingly conformed. We talked about this for a great many weeks, uh, the idea of progressive sanctification, which we'll talk about more in a second. But um, that we, we are in a process of growth because of our new nature of submitting to the Word of God, obeying the Word of God. And that 2 Corinthians 3.18 passage, um, seeing the glory of Christ through the Word changes our hearts, our lives, to be in greater conformity and obedience um, uh, with what God wants. And so that's a, that, that new nature begins a process that ends at glorification. So, yeah. Election. We believe that election is the act of God by which, before the foundation of the world, he chose in Christ those whom he graciously regenerates, saves, and sanctifies. 
We believe that sovereign election does not contradict or negate the responsibility of man to repent and trust Christ as Savior and Lord. Nevertheless, since sovereign grace includes the means of receiving the gift of salvation as well as the gift itself, sovereign election will result in what God determined. All whom the Father calls to himself will come in faith, and all who come in faith the Father will receive. So this is, obviously there's a couple more paragraphs there, but this is what we mean by unconditional election. So uh, it's not, and I think the next two paragraphs will say this, it's not that God has looked through the corridors of time and saw who, he, uh, who would trust in him and said, okay, those are whom I'm going to choose. It's got God chose, and therefore people believe. Um, and when we think about that, it's, it includes the end. It's trying to, this paragraph is trying to articulate it includes not only the ends, so you're saved, but also the means, meaning God also chose you to believe uh, to repent and believe, which is an action on their part. So there's this kind of weird perspectives things. From our perspective, we repent and believe. From God's perspective, he already knew we were going to repent and believe. He ordained that to happen uh, from the foundation of the world. So that's just weird. It's a mind bender, right? But that's the, the universe we live in, is that God decrees all things, but we don't know what he's decreed. Uh, we just know what are we responsible for and how are we to respond um, uh, to, say, the preaching of the gospel. So... We're trying to articulate what Scripture itself says. Here's, here's what things look like from God's perspective, uh, even as we're responsible from our perspective as humans to respond to those things. I think that's the best way to resolve a lot of the tensions we feel in Scripture. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm responsible. Yes, you are. But at the same time, God is sovereign. So both are true, and Scripture affirms both. And I think the easiest way to... Easiest? The best way to resolve that is think in terms of perspectives. What does God see from his vantage point, and what do we see from our vantage point? So, yeah. We believe that the unmerited favor that God grants to totally depraved sinners is not related to any initiative of their own part or to God's anticipation of what they might do by their own will, but is solely of his sovereign grace and mercy. We believe that election should not be looked upon as mere, based merely on abstract sovereignty. God is truly sovereign, but he exercises the sovereignty in harmony with his other attributes, especially his omniscience, justice, holiness, wisdom, grace, and love. This sovereignty will always exalt the will of God in a manner totally consistent with his character as revealed in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. What this is trying to articulate is uh, it's not like um, a cold determinism where you're just kind of fated for everything to happen, right? That's kind of a cold determinism. It's just kind of abstract and out there. But when we're talking about election, we're talking about God um, in his character of love, justice, holiness, uh, doing these things. Uh, so this isn't a cold arbitrariness. This is, this is uh, God in warm, uh, unconditional grace uh, doing these things. And so that's what this paragraph is trying to articulate. It's not a cold determinism. It's a it's, it's rooted in God's love and choice from before the foundation of the world. So, yeah. Questions on election? Yeah, Tony.
Absolutely, right? Everything God does, he does for his own glory. And so when we think about election, it's, it's for a, uh, a purpose. He, he does it to demonstrate his own character, his own grace, his, his own mercy, his many, many things. Um, and, uh, and the other thing important to that is it's not, it is individuals, but again, it's that corporate reality. It's a people. Um, he's chosen to redeem a people for himself. And you see the end in Revelation, right? The, that people redeemed, glorifying, praising, honoring, enjoying God to his glory for, for all eternity. So, yeah. All right, it is 10, so we're going to pause there unless there are any last-minute questions or comments. So we're going to pick up a justification on page 7 next week. Let's pray. God, we give you great praise and glory and honor because of who you are. Um, Lord, you are amazing you, um, you are a mystery, um, ultimately, and, and uh, you've revealed yourself to us, and so we can know what you have revealed to us through the pages of Scripture, um, and we thank you for the, what you have revealed about yourself, and yet only you know your own mind and what you have done, um, and you are amazing. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Um, and choosing us before the foundation of the world, not because of anything in and ourselves, but because of who you are, and just because of your sovereign, gracious choice, uh, Lord, help us to live in ways, uh, to live out the new nature you have given us to honor you in all that we do. And we pray for that, even as we come together as a corporate body here in a little bit, to sing your praises. We pray that we would sing more heartily, knowing what we know about you now. We pray that we would listen more intently to your word, to desire to know you more so that we might praise you more. We ask that we would labor for one another because knowing that you have not chosen just us, but others around us, and Lord, that we would labor for them to know and to love Christ even as you have loved us. Lord, we, we just praise you for this time we've been able to have together, and we ask that you would be honored in what we do the rest of this day. Uh, in Christ's name, amen.